As always, if you would keep your Bibles open, if you want to find John chapter 17 and uh, beginning with verse 20, we'll, I'll read a few of those verses during our study of this passage uh, this morning. Humility is essential for unity. The thing about our our Bibles is that um, you know we we went in as translators and entered in the verse numbers and the chapter numbers for organizational sake. But uh, this this is a letter written to a church, and it's it's like you would write a letter. You don't put chapter numbers and verses in your handwritten letters. It just flows, and and so that's the way we need to read these books in the Bible is that it, they flow. And we'll see in just a few minutes how, how chapter 2 just really flows out of what we've been studying in, in chapter 1. We'll get to that in just a little bit. So that's, that's why we're talking about unity and humility in, in chapter 2. As always, let, let's stop for just a moment and pray and ask uh, the Lord to help us today. Father, um, in, in, in a sense, when we come to this time of our worship service and uh, there's someone who is proclaiming the perfect, inspired Word of God to the people of God, in a sense, uh, that person stands between you and your people. And that's a fearful place to be. And I just want to confess to you, God, today and, and before this church body that if I were not, Lord, convinced of your calling, I would not want to do this. And so I, uh, I, I ask that you speak beyond my voice I ask that I not get in the way. I ask that I not be seen. That, Father, you would help me to be faithful not only to the words of your scripture, but of the heart and of the purpose and the intent, not just the letter, but the spirit. Spirit of the Word. Because that's what we need, Father. We, we all need, myself included, is to hear from you today. That you might speak loudly, clearly, forcefully, lovingly, winsomely, that we might be changed. That we might grow more in your likeness, that we might grow more together as a local body of believers, that we might grow in you. And for some of us, Lord, gathered this morning, that we might come to know you. We know about you, but we need to know you. And for that, Father, I am absolutely powerless. That's, that's beyond anything 
that's of me. So we gather here, we, we gather around your word, and we look to you. Father, speak and help us to hear. In Christ's name, amen. So last week, we concluded chapter 1, and Paul is, is calling us really to join with him on this life of holy joy, which is really summarized in verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul is calling his readers to follow him. So, so he implores us in the last part of chapter 1 that, that our, our manner of life then, to, to pursue this life of holy joy, our manner of life must showcase the gospel, must be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so Paul calls us then practically then to do that, to, to showcase the gospel for our lives to match our profession. He calls on us to stand firm, to hold our ground in the faith, to not, to not compromise, to not give an inch. He says to strive for the faith of the gospel, to labor, to work, to battle for the faith. And he says not to go solo, but we've got to do this side by side. And in order to do that, we've got to be one. We, we have to have unity. We can't stand firm and, and strive for the faith on our own. We need each other. That's why from the very beginning, as God, wherever God saves people, they always end up together. They always start meeting together, assembling together, praying together, singing together, looking to the, to use the New Testament language, the apostles' doctrine together. They, they, just, they just naturally come together. God has built it into his people that way. We, we need each other, and because we need each other, we need unity. And that's why, the, that, that's why divisive and, and division and separation and, and all of these, that, that's the territory of the enemy. That's his purpose. That's his goal. To defeat and tear down and tear away and rip apart what God's putting together. That happens in homes. That happens in hearts. That happens in churches. We need unity. And so Paul writes in the in closing of chapter 1, in one spirit with one mind. So that a whole church, a whole group of people would have one spirit, would essentially have one mind. So the essential ingredient that, that enables the church to stay in the fight, to, to be effective in advancing the gospel... The main ingredient is then unity. We, we have to have it or, or nothing, nothing else really, really matters. You, you have to have the main ingredient or it, it comes to naught. When I was thinking about having this main ingredient, I, my, my mother, uh, she, she loves the Lord, but she's got a little mischief in her from time to time and she likes to uh pull pranks and and she will she'll sometimes for your birthday or whatever she would bake you a, a fake cake 
And uh, it would have, you know, it would have the, the, the icing on it, the candles on it. I mean, it, it would look delicious. You would slice into it and it would be golden and flaky and, and you would bite into it and it would be cornbread. And then, then she would bring out the real cake. If, if you miss, if you, 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 can, you can do what you want to with the icing. That's not the main ingredient. You got to get the batter right. Or you don't have a cake. You got to get the unity right. It doesn't matter how well we dress up, how well we act up on Sunday morning if we don't have the unity right. We can be excellent at every other thing, but if we don't have the unity right, we become ineffective for the gospel. Because you can sense. You, you can sense, no one has to tell you, but, but when, when people are not together, when, when a family is not together, when, when a group of people are not together, you walk into a room where there's just been an argument, you can tell it, can't you? You can feel it. When you walk into a church, you can feel it if they're together or not. It, now, if they're together, you can feel that too. If you walk into a room where people are loving one another and, 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 and love to be there and are on the same page, headed in the same direction, you can sense that too. Without a word being spoken, Paul knows unity is, is the main thing in terms of the church and advancing the gospel. So he just glanced over it in these previous verses in chapter 1, but now in these 11 verses, he dives deep. He goes after it in these verses. That's what these verses are aiming at, and he reaches down deep. This is the hard work Last week, we, last week, we simply mentioned it. That's the, that's the theoretical, theological truth. This text is the hard work of seeing the theological truth become a reality in our lives. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is the difference between the fellowships that are sweet with, with unity and those that are bitter without it. So we really have to ask ourselves, right? Are y'all ready for this? Y'all ready to go deep? And I don't mean deep theologically. I mean deep in, in, the, in the heart work. 90% of the work of the Christian faith is done in the heart. 90% of the labor, 90% of the fight of faith is done in the heart privately, personally, between you and God. And when we get the posture of our heart right, when we fight that fight by faith, then, then the other labor comes naturally. We, we, we come to learn what Christ says. My, my, my burden is easy. My, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. After we've done the hard heart work, But it gets difficult before it gets sweet. We have to have unity as a whole to advance the gospel. And to have unity as a whole, each individual member has to have humility. And that's where the title comes from. Humility is essential for unity. 
And when we start talking about humility, that's the hard heart work. Unity, unity just happens when the hard heart work of humility has taken place. When a congregation is, is filled with humility, there arises a fragrance and a flavor of unity. It makes the gospel irresistible. To those who are without the gospel, when they encounter a fellowship that's rich with the gospel, rich with unity, it, it makes it irresistible. To smell and, and to taste unity around the gospel of Christ creates a desire within thirsty souls to have it. And what a blessing of joy, right? How blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Joy among the fellowship. So let's see how Paul is leading us down this path of, of the hard heart work. For the purpose of unity, which is then for the purpose of advancing the gospel. That's the ultimate goal, advancing the gospel. So number one, we see a call for unity in verses 1 and 2. A call for unity. And the first thing that, that Paul tells us is that we need to assemble all the resources God has put at our disposal. God has given us everything we need to pursue unity. To have this unity. It's at our disposal. Unity is difficult, but it's not impossible. Especially for the people of God. Especially because God has given to us all that we need. We have it in, in, in our reach, in our grasp, to, to pursue unity, to obtain it as the people of God. Here, here are five things in our passage that Paul mentions rather quickly. And, he, and he's calling, he's, he's saying, this is, this is rather rhetorical because he's talking to the people of God. In other words, he's saying, realize you have this. Realize it's there. Or, or if not, pray about it because it should be. You are the people of God. So he's saying, if there is any, if you can look and see a smidgen if there's any, and, and the first thing that he talks about is encouragement in Christ. In other words, is Christ encouraging us toward unity? Can, can, can we look through the, the, the scripture? Can, can, can we see in Christ that he is compelling us and moving us? Can, can we look within the Christ who dwells within us as we pray and seek his face and, and understand that he's urging us, his people, to be one, to have unity? Did you know that Christ himself, one of his foremost priorities for his people is unity? That's why Paul's saying, do you have any encouragement in Christ? Does your Savior desire this for you? Does your Savior work this for you? Christ encourages us to pursue unity with one another. How, how do you know that, Pastor? How do you know that Jesus encourages us 
to pursue unity. Because that's what he prayed for. You pray for the things that you're passionate about. You pray for the things that you're pursuing. So let's look at John 17. This is Jesus' part of Jesus' intercessory, high priestly prayer before the cross. Paul says, is there any encouragement in Christ? In other words, Paul is saying, am I departing from what Christ wants or, or is this really in line with what Christ wants for his people? John 17, verse 20, Jesus praying to the Father, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples that are right around here in the garden while I'm praying, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Believing in Christ because of the word of the New Testament. And here's what Christ prayed for us, that they may all be successful, that that they may all be free from any, any pain or discomfort or disease or ill will. No, that they may all be one. That was first, first and foremost. Jesus looked down through the ages of all who would believe in him. And the number one request, that means it's really important. And that means for us, it's really difficult. But his number one prayer was that they may be one. A kind of... Almost, you know, talk. No, no, no. Look, look what kind of oneness. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us the kind of unity that the Father and the Son enjoy so that, remember the gospel, advancing the gospel is the ultimate goal, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see that? So what Paul is laying out in Philippians, he's just taking up from Christ. Now we could go on and read some more verses, but let's, let's get back to our text. That's, that's the flow of, of Christ's prayer. So, so Paul says, do you have any encouragement in Christ? Well, that's the way Christ is praying for us. So of course we have encouragement. Paul says, do you have any comfort from love? So Paul's going to keep asking these questions until we have no excuses for not having unity, right? Because we're going to see God has given us all that we need for unity. So he just keeps stacking these questions. Do you have encouragement in Christ? Do you have comfort from love? You know, there's a tremendous level of comfort, isn't there, when you know that you're loved? When you know that somebody loves you? There, there's, a, there's a comfort that, that washes over us when we know somebody deeply cares about me. Some, someone loves me. I am loved. We feel those arms of, of comfort wrap around us. And it comforts away loneliness and, and inwardness. We're able to look outside of ourselves when we know that we are loved. But that's just kind of a general sense of, of, of the love between fellow men. But, th- but, but when we think about God, that's what Paul is having us look toward. 
When we think about God and his love, God who sits in the heavens, God who reigns over the universe, God who is absolutely holy and pure in in every one of his perfections, who is before all time, the holy, almighty God of the universe. When we think that God loved us before the foundation of the world, he tells us. In other words, before God said, let there be, he said, you are loved. Before the foundation of the world, rotten sinners as we are. It was the verse that Martin shared, right? This is the love of God. Christ Christ died for us while we were sinners. An extraordinary comfort then washes over our souls to know that we are loved by God. And that love of God then empowers us for whatever and wherever God leads us. As long as I know God loves me, as long as you know God loves you, we we have no problem following him even in the difficult places. Even in the difficult parts of this journey when we know that we are loved. Do you have any comfort, Paul says, from love? When we stop and think, God, God loves you just like he loves me. That unity then becomes far less difficult to achieve. Paul says, do you have encouragement? Do you have comfort? And then he says, do you have any participation in the Spirit? Now, that's rhetorical, isn't it? Does the Spirit live in you or not? Is what Paul is saying. Is the Spirit of God at work or not? Is he alive or not? Is he God or not? Do you you have any participation in the Spirit? You see, God's calling us to things that are beyond us. Absolutely. But not without the power to do so. Not within us. Not within me. Will doesn't have the power to pursue anything God calls him to pursue, but but God has indwelt will. Now, that's a different story. God empowers us through the living Spirit of God who lives within us. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead resides within us who believe in Christ. So the power, the resurrection power of the living God lives within each one of us. Is unity difficult? Is humility hard? Hard work? Absolutely. But not impossible for the people of God. For the Spirit of God lives within us. Listen, Jesus prayed that we would be one, which means the Spirit knows what one of his main job descriptions would be. Make sure Jesus' prayer gets answered. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit is working to make sure Christ's prayer is answered. Hey, I thank God that it's not left up to me alone, that I have the Spirit of God, that I rely on Him. 
I mean, we, we, we may be thinking, Pastor, you, you, you don't know what's happened. You don't know the history. You haven't really gotten to know so-and-so yet. I mean, when you talk about this unity thing, I don't know if I can ever do it. Guess what? Headline. You can't. You can't. I can't. But God hasn't left us on our own. You have any participation in the Spirit? See where Paul is directing us? He's, don't look to yourself. Look to Christ. Look to God's love. Look to the Spirit. The Spirit gives us the strength to do the hard heart work. And then he says, do you have any, do you have any affection? I mean, we, we are the people of God. Do we have love one to another? Do we love each other as Christ has loved us? Do you have any affection, Paul says? In other words, are you moved? Are you moved in your heart toward one another? As the people of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then that leads us really to the, to the next point is sympathy. That, that affection for one another leads to the sympathy for one another. Do we hurt? Do we hurt when each other is hurting? But there's spiritual sympathy. Do, 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 we, do, do our hearts ache when, when we see a brother or a sister struggling, struggling with life, struggling with sin, weighed down with the world? Do we sympathize? Do we sympathize with those who are weak and are struggling just to maintain, just to take the next breath, just to keep going? Do we sympathize or, or do we judge, condemn? You know, if God dwells within us, our disposition towards one another over time should increasingly begin to look more like God's disposition towards others. And our needs. So here Paul speak, speak to our hearts this morning. God, God has generously, graciously already given to us all that we need to keep unity, to be one. And Paul says that what, that's what his joy is waiting on. That's, that, that's what I'm waiting on. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. L listen. When, when, when he hears that the church at Philippi his, is one, his joy is going to overflow because if they are one, then nothing is going to be able to stop what God has in store. But if you can take the whole and slice off a little bit, that's all you need to hinder and halt what God can do. That's all you need. It's just a little separation, just a little division. So Paul says, complete my joy. 
Think of all that you have that God has given you, that God does for you, and pursue, pursue unity. Listen to the picture of unity that Paul paints. He says, be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord with one mind. Now, in other words, Paul's using these different word pictures Full accord, one mind, same love. In other words, this is not pretend unity. This is not shallow, seemingly togetherness. This is authentic. This is down to the bone. This is real, one mind, same love. This is not unity talk. This is unity walk. And, and, and when the church of God develops this, this kind of sameness, this, this kind of harmony, this, this kind of unity among the, among the fellowship, this kind of unity of purpose and, and gospel, the air is thick. You, you can taste it. You can smell it. You, you, you can feel it. You're drawn to it. You're, you're attracted to it. You can't help but enjoy it. You can't help but want more of it. You can't help but want to be a part of it. We have what we need to get at it, but we all individually have to do the hard heart work of humility to realize unity's potential. The potential. What is the potential of Grassy Pond Baptist Church for the sake of the gospel of Christ in this community and to the ends of the earth? What is the potential when unity abounds? It takes the hard heart work then. That's why we go to verses 3 and 4 and we see this crisis of faith. Now, a crisis of faith occurs when when the Scripture is calling, calls on us to do the opposite of what we naturally, in our fallenness, in our natural inclination, would rather do. That's when we come to a crisis of faith. When the Scripture is telling us to do what something that's opposite of what we believe we should do or what it looks like we should do or what it feels like I should do or what I want to do. And the scripture says, no, don't do that, do this. And even though even everybody else is telling us, no, you need to do this. You need to go this way. You need to say that. You need to make this life adjustment. You need to, you need to go down this life path. But the Bible says, here's... My desire, here's my will for your life. And it's totally opposite from everything that's in you that's screaming, let's go this way. There's a crisis of faith. Because then that, that, that's the battle of faith. That's the fight of faith. Because then we have to believe what God says is actually true and better and for his glory and for my good and in the long run will be for the good of his people other than what I've already convinced myself and everybody else is convinced I need to be doing. Believing God rather than me. 
You see, that, that crisis of faith comes when we start talking about this issue of humility. That means me taking the back seat. That's not what I believe I should do. Jesus is my co-pilot. He better not be. That, that's against, we're, we're inclined to be selfish, right? Lord, it's hard to be humble. How's the song go? When you're perfect in every way. We, we have to believe that being humble, striving for humility, pursuing humility is going to be better for us than being selfish. That actually what the Bible says is true. When we stoop low, God lifts us high. When we lay our lives down, God raises us up. But when we raise ourselves up, God puts down the prideful. Now that's hard, difficult, heart work. Listen, it's not an easy thing to get self off the throne. It's not an easy thing to die to yourself. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross. That's not easy. That's not easy work. It's not easy to get off the throne of our heart and stay off. We get off initially when we embrace Christ as Savior, but we're always itching to get back in that seat. To get back in charge. I read a quote from one of our so-called spiritual leaders in America in which he said... God's in charge, but he's left us in control. And I thought, oh my. Now we're, we're in a mess if that's true. It's not easy to get self out of the center. That's what sin is. That's, that's the original sin. Take and eat it. You'll be like God. You'll be the sinner. <laughs> okay. That's our inclination. So Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. A ambition is a strong desire to achieve something. We know what ambition means. And there, there's nothing wrong with having goals. There's nothing wrong with, with improving. There's nothing wrong with striving to achieve. There's nothing wrong with those things. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition in other words i'm going to get what i want it doesn't matter what your needs or your wants are now we would never say that the question is is that how we operate is that how we think i'm going to get what i want i know what they say i'm going to get what i want the the i the I matters more than the you. Let's just stop and ask ourselves this question of our desires. Let's just do some self-evaluating. Let's do some hard heart work. 
Remember, before I preach this to you, I got to preach it to myself all week. Do we have any desires? Are there any desires of your heart right now? Is there any ambition in your heart right now that you've been operating on, that you've been pursuing, that you've been planning for, organizing for, scheduling for, praying for, looking for? Are there any desires in your life? Are you pursuing anything that's actually first and foremost for the good of someone else and not for me? Not for you. That in your mind, you're not doing this to get something out of it. You're doing something that they might get something out of it. Spiritually. That they might grow, that they might know Christ, that they might hunger, that they might thirst, that they might be saved, that they might worship, that they might love, that they might serve. Not doing it for self, but for others. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What is conceit? Conceit is when we are, we are so vainwardly, uh, vainly inward. We're, we're, we're trapped in this vain pursuit of, of just pleasing ourselves and making sure that we, that we, we, that I, I, in other words, the world is revolving around us. That's conceit. The world is defined by how I, I, I define it. By the way, we've been working on something this month that should help us here, right? Our treasure verse, Psalm 119.36. Can you say it with me? Incline my heart to your testimonies. Here it is. And not to selfish gain, selfish ambition, or conceit. But, Paul says, in humility... See, that's the opposite. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Well, how how do you do that? Because that's naturally what I want to do. Well, in humility. Chase humility. Pursue humility. Go low. Because that's the only way this will happen. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's the key. That's the key to joy. That's the key to unity. That's the key to humility. That's the key of advancing the gospel. Now, we need to put this in a spiritual context, right? This means we convince ourselves that, our spiritual, that, that your spiritual needs and your spiritual growth matters more than mine does. That I want to live, I want to work, I want to give, I want to serve, I want to do, I want to say, I want to be so that you might glory in Christ. So that you might love the Lord. So that you might know him and treasure him. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He says in verse 4, let each of you, let each of you, see it comes down to the individual? Let each of you, it's the individual hard heart work Let each of you, individual humility produces corporate unity. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Questions like this, what would be in your best spiritual interest? What would be in their best spiritual interest? 
Let's, let's go further. Let's, let's ask about those who are not here, who need to be here, who need the gospel. What's in their best spiritual interest? And what can I do to make that happen? What can I do to help you blossom and thrive spiritually? When we have a whole congregation of individuals who think like that, the sweet flavor of unity saturates the church. We've all heard the stories, right, of churches splitting over the color of the carpet, right? I don't think we're in danger of losing unity over the color of the carpet. That's not on the agenda anywhere. But we might be tested in other areas. Let's do some hard heart work. We might be tested in other areas. When it comes to matters of the church, what if we stop asking, what do I like? What do I prefer? And start asking, what do they need? That's hard heart work. How can we reach them? Not what would be better for me. How can we reach them? And what if we were all asking that question? Humility. Humility. You know, sometimes we have a view of the Christian faith that says the most important thing about walking with the Lord is how high you can fly. And you hear that coming through a lot of teaching, a lot of popular teaching. How high, how high can I fly? But it, but it seems to me, especially in regard to the posture of the heart, the Bible's view is how low can you go? Not how high can you fly. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. In terms of the posture of our hearts, it seems to me that we need to be a people that are striving not to see how high we can get above everybody, but how low to the ground we can get. Do you smell dirt? That's what we should be, our nostrils should be, should be filled with the dirt and the grime of the world that we live in as the people of God. Because we're low. In the, we're, we're earthy. We're where the rubber meets the road. We're, we're where real life happens and we're advancing the gospel. How can I stoop to help you stand? Well, the last part of our verse, we're going to, our, our passage is verses 5 through 8, and there's a, the Christ to follow. Not only has God given us all of these resources at the beginning of our passage, but Christ is our great example to follow. Now, we're going to get really next week in the, into the specifics of this passage because next week, Lord willing, we're, we're going to have communion so we'll get into the specifics of this passage as preparing our hearts for communion next week. So we're just, I'm just going to make kind of a broad observation here for us today. How, how are we going to have that kind of, of radical, God-centered, other-centered, 
otherworldly humility. Paul says, here it is, follow Christ. You, you not only have everything you need in your spiritual tool belt, Christ has gone before us. Watch him. Look to him. Pattern our hearts after him. Let this mind, look at verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let Move, move, move ourselves out of the center of our mind and put Christ there and see what you see. And the first thing that Paul calls us to look at, look how far Christ humbled himself to save you. Have this mind in yourself that's yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He, he didn't show up in all of his radiant majesty. He showed up in a manger from glory to a stable. Can you imagine that? From eternity, the throne of eternity to a stable. From heaven to earth. No one has traveled further down the ladder of humility than Christ. Listen, he didn't hide his deity, but he didn't parade it either. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, but he emptied himself. Now that doesn't mean that he lost any of what it meant for him to be God. But it meant that he veiled himself in our human flesh. He came in the form of a servant, not the form of a king. Born in the likeness of men. You know, when you look throughout history... And even up into our own day, rulers and dictators and kings, men who rule over other men have always wanted to portray themselves as godlike and even called others to worship them. In the Bible, we read of making statues of themselves and telling everybody to worship that statue. In our own day, hang, hang, hang a picture of me in, in every living room. Because I'm God. I rule over men. I'm God. Look at me. But when God, who actually does rule over all men, showed up, he came as a servant. Humility. Humility is exemplified not only in the change of location from heaven to earth, but in his appearance as a servant and in the posture of his heart, verse 8, for the purpose for which he came. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. Paul says, look to Christ and have that mind in you that was in Christ. Because it's yours. Because Christ is yours. And if we can get that, Paul says, you've got it. you got it. If you can cling to Christ and follow him, you got it. And if you've got humility, you've got unity. And if you've got unity, you're advancing the gospel. And that's the most joyful place to be on planet Earth. Let's pray. Father, help us now in these next few moments to do the hard heart work. 
Lord, to really dig down and, and really be honest and let the light of Scripture and the light of gospel shine upon our hearts and cry out to you, Lord, realizing that it's not about me. It's about you. It's, it's not about me. It's about them. It's about others. It's about your people, your glory, your fame, your gospel, your church, your people. Change the posture of my heart. Change the inclination of my heart, Father, to see you lifted on the throne. Your glory resounding in my life. Going low that you might be lifted high. Decreasing that you might increase. Stooping low that others may stand. Father, help us to pursue that path. Make it so in our lives, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.